Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so as we go over recent developments in the public safety labor world. And I've got some really significant cases to talk to you about this month uh, from various places around the country. Uh, first, just a very brief uh, vaccine update. Uh, the uh, challenges to vaccination mandates continue around the country. Uh, thus far, not one has been successful. My count is that uh, the scoreboard now reads uh, 68 to 0 in terms of general constitutional statutory challenges to vaccine mandates. There are a few state court proceedings at the trial court level where you have seen temporary injunctions put in place while other things have been happening, a hearing on the merits or perhaps an arbitration or something like that. Um, but those are scattered and they are very much outnumbered by courts refusing to issue injunctions to stop vaccine mandates. Most significantly, in the last month, we've seen uh, judges in Los Angeles turn down requests in separate cases from uh, Los Angeles police officers and Los Angeles firefighters for a temporary restraining order holding the city's vaccine mandate in place. Uh, the other news on vaccine mandates is we are seeing some employers get to the end of the bargaining process with their unions and in states where the bargaining process ends with binding arbitration, the majority of states with collective bargaining have that sort of model. We are starting to see our first decisions from arbitrators on whether or not an employer should have a vaccine mandate. And thus far, uh, we've seen three decisions. The big one involves Chicago firefighters and general employees. Uh, the decision on Chicago police uh, is supposed to come out any day, but hasn't. Uh, and in the case involving Chicago firefighters and general employees, the arbitrator held that there should be a vaccine mandate, that the public safety concerns that are addressed by a mandate overrode any individual interests. Uh, we've also seen the same thing in a case uh, from uh, Pennsylvania and a separate case involving corrections officers in Illinois. So that's it for a, a very, very quick vaccination update. Uh, now I want to turn to the cases because these cases are just simply so fascinating this month on a variety of different topics, uh, some of lasting significance and some that are a little bit more ephemeral uh, than, um, but are still very interesting. And in that latter category, I want to talk about the first published decision that I have seen on uh, the demonstrations that devolved into riots on January 6th. This is a case involving the termination of a police lieutenant. And let me warn you, uh, before I get into the facts of this case, let me warn you that uh, this is not going to be the case that I think a lot of us have been looking for. What is the case? The case would involve a public safety employee who went to President Trump's speech uh, on the ellipse, uh, listened to the speech, and then 
with the crowd that was marching towards the Capitol, marched towards the Capitol, saw what was happening at the Capitol, and turned around and walked away and did nothing further. That is a case that will most squarely pose the free speech questions that a lot of people have about whether or not public safety employees could engage in that sort of conduct. I think the answer is probably going to be that, that it, all of that was protected speech. Uh, you know, certainly going to a rally uh, conducted by the President of the United States, uh, certainly a march. Uh, those are all sorts of classically protect, uh, politically protected speech. Uh, but that's not the case I'm going to give you, unfortunately. We don't have that case yet. What we have is a case with those facts and more. And it's the at more that got this lieutenant for the Bear County Sheriff's Office in Texas that got her fired. Her name is Roseanne Mathai, excuse me, Roxanne Mathai. Uh, and the sheriff's office in Bear County, and that's a, a large county in Texas, the sheriff's office learned on January 7th that Mathai had participated in the events of the Capitol on January 6th. How did they learn that? They looked at her Facebook page, and uh, on her Facebook page, she posted pictures and videos uh, the pictures and videos showed rioters climbing the walls of the Capitol building. Uh, the Sheriff's Department, or Sheriff's Office, as they call it there, uh, got a number of complaints from members of the public. Uh, for example, uh, one complaint said, uh, how can you have a terrorist who works as a lieutenant in the Sheriff's Office? Another said, why is there a Sheriff's Office lieutenant participating in that mess in D.C. So when the department gets these complaints, and some of them started with comments on Mathai's Facebook page, it opens up an investigation. And it asks her questions, the logical questions. Uh, did you go into the Capitol? Did you enter the property of the uh, U.S. Capitol? And did you see any crimes that were being committed? And in the internal affairs investigation, Mathai answered that, and I've got to say I don't understand this answer, but this is the way the arbitrator poses it in his opinion. Uh, when she's asked those questions, Mathai answers that she was, quote, not a peace officer and did not possess a complete understanding of the law in her own jurisdiction, much less in Washington, D.C., well, uh, when the investigation was done, the department uh, fired Mathai, and the Deputy Sheriff's Association for Bear County challenged the termination in arbitration. And it went to an arbitrator by the name of Thomas Cipolla, uh, and he, in a fairly brief opinion, we'll post it with the show notes for uh, this podcast, in a fairly brief opinion, uh, upholds the termination. Uh, and what he does is to focus on the plus. Remember I said this is not the case we're looking for. This is the case plus other stuff. And that's what the other stuff, uh, the other stuff is what the arbitrator really hones in on. What does the arbitrator say? 
Uh, there's no persuasive evidence that Mathai went beyond the perimeters cordoned off by law enforcement. No evidence that she trespassed on government property or otherwise committed a crime. However, here comes the other, she saw people trespassing, climbing on walls and scaffolding at the Capitol building. She saw barricades knocked down. She learned that tear gas had been employed by local law enforcement, and she continued to linger at the location that appeared to be escalating in its lawfulness. And then, says the arbitrator, she went back a few hours later after everybody knew what had gone on in the Capitol. And from the time of her attendance at the rally, through her return to Texas and afterwards, she never got in touch with any of her supervisors to inform them of what she saw or what she heard. And it is clear that she saw, the arbitrator says, numerous people committing acts of trespass and destruction uh, and violence. And then the arbitrator ends with uh, some observations about Mathai's credibility. And in these cases, as in, you know, bluntly, any disciplinary case, the number one rule that employees have to follow in internal affairs investigations is be truthful at all times. Be true. Don't try to shade anything. Don't try to play games. Be truthful. And the arbitrator says, uh, Mathai, Lieutenant Mathai, uh, flunked that rule. Uh, and I'm going to quote from his opinion. The circumstances and facts of the January 6th lawless conduct and Mathai's own comments about the matter show a real disconnect between what happened and what she said she observed. Furthermore, Mathai's assessment of the reason for the rally and what actually occurred is wanting in both its reasoning and logic. The purpose of the rally, by all accounts, was to convince Congress to overturn the 2020 presidential election, or at the very least not certify the entirety of the Electoral College votes and ballots. Lawless activity ensued that day, from trespass and destruction of property to assault, battery, and death. To say the least, Mathai was correct in stating that she was documenting history though she is neither a journalist or a historian. But assigning the notion of patriotism to the purpose of the rally is naive at best and hypocritical at worst. Uh, in other words, the arbitrator just simply didn't believe Mathai's account of what was going on. Now, uh, it, a couple of things about Mathai's case uh, really did not help at all. Um, one of them was that when she was posting her pictures of uh, the barricades coming down and the crowds going into the Capitol, she posted this message. And we are going in, in the crowd at the stairs, not inside the Capitol like the others, not catching a case, LOL. That's one thing that I think hurt her very much. The second thing that hurt her was progressive discipline wasn't going to be a possibility. She was in the process of serving a 120-day suspension without pay on January 6th. So the arbitrator says, no need to mitigate this punishment. 
termination upheld. Now, I know there are a lot of other January 6 cases uh, involving public safety employees in the pipeline. This is merely the first of them, uh, and it will be interesting to see how these cases start to come out when we have less actual involvement and less actual misconduct than we saw from Lieutenant Mathai. Next up, let's go to Los Angeles for a case that kind of falls in the same category, uh, a case that has uh, pretty fascinating facts, uh, but not likely to have long-term precedental effect. Um, but it is one of the most unusual police discipline cases that I have ever seen or read about. Uh, I mean, it's just a bizarre case. Uh, it involves a couple of police officers, Louis uh, Lozano and Eric Mitchell. They were working as partners on a Saturday in 2017, and they were assigned to a foot patrol beat. Uh, what they were doing was they were working in an area of Los Angeles known as the uh, Crenshaw Corridor and Limerick Park, uh, and their job was basically to address quality of life issues uh, in that area. Uh, there are two supervisors who are going to play an important role in this case, were Sergeant Jose Gomez and also uh, Captain Darnell Davenport. Uh, Davenport uh, hears a call coming out on the radio that there has been a homicide. Uh, and so Davenport, the captain, responds to the homicide scene. Uh, on the way, he hears another radio call. This is for a robbery in progress. Welcome to Close In Los Angeles, right? Uh, with multiple suspects, and this is at the Macy's in a nearby mall called the Crenshaw Mall. When the call comes in, Davenport uh, can see the Macy's from where he is stopped when the robbery call comes in, and he noticed a police car tucked in an alley just feet away from the Macy's. He wasn't able to identify the unit, uh, but the unit didn't respond to the radio call, and Davenport assumed it might be a traffic unit or a unit that was on a different radio frequency. So Davenport decides he's going to divert. He's going to go to the robbery call, uh, and he notifies communications that he was code six going to the scene of the robbery. And at the same time, he sees the police car that's tucked in this alley uh, back uh, down the alley and negotiate a left-hand turn and leave the area. Sergeant Gomez is back in the watch commander's office when all of this is happening. He describes the, the events on the radio and what he's seeing remotely as chaotic with constant updates going on as to what's happening at, at Macy's. Uh, and when uh, Davenport went code six on the robbery, Gomez looked up at what's known as the watch commander's board that uh, tells supervisors where different units are, and he saw Lozano's and Mitchell's unit was in the Crenshaw Corridor area. He attempted to radio them and request that they respond to the Crenshaw Mall to assist Davenport, but he gets no response. Uh, a unit then breaks away from the homicide scene, remember the homicide, went code three from across the division to assist at the mall. Gomez again asked communication 
for a response from Lozano or Mitchell and was told there was none. Uh, and all of this starts to eat on uh, Gomez over time. He's wondering what is going on. So he, he calls uh, Lozano and Mitchell and asks them, did you hear a call for backup at the Crenshaw Mall for a robbery? Mitchell said he hadn't. Lozano said he heard Davenport was code six at the mall, but he didn't hear a, a request for backup. Uh, Mitchell gives the explanation that there was a lot of music in the park. It was really loud that day in the park. Well, Gomez sleeps on it, and the next day, it's bugging him enough that he decides he's going to review the uh, patrol car's in-car recording. Uh, and that, that it's an in-car video. And that video shows that, in fact, had been Lozano's and Mitchell's car that Davenport saw in the alley, uh, that they had heard the radio call about the robbery in progress. Uh, Gomez can hear that from what he is seeing on the recording, and that they discussed the call and whether they should assist Davenport, and that they decided not to do so. They decided to go to the Crenshaw corridor instead uh, to conceal that they had decided not to respond to the call. And Lozano is recorded as saying, quote, I don't want to be his help, referring to uh, Davenport. Well, that's enough for Gomez, and Gomez starts an internal affairs investigation. Uh, and in the internal affairs investigation, uh, this truly bizarre fact pops up. Lozano and Mitchell were playing Pokemon Go on the day of the robbery, if not during the robbery. Uh, the recording, when it is analyzed finally by IA, shows that five minutes uh, after Lozano said, screw it, to checking in with communications on the robbery call, Mitchell alerted Lozano that Snorlax had just popped up at 46th and Limer. Uh, for those of you who don't have kids who are uh, of the Pokemon Go age, I guess from uh, this case, we know that adults are playing Pokemon Go as well. Uh, Snorlax is an incredibly valuable character uh, or Pokemon. Uh, so that's what the importance was of to Mitchell and Lozano uh, chasing this Pokemon. And for the next 20 minutes, uh, the in-car recording captures Lozano and Mitchell talking about Pokemon as they drive to different locations where the virtual creatures appeared on their mobile phones and they were able to capture them. Lozano and Mitchell, though, when they are questioned in internal affairs, denied playing Pokemon Go. They claimed they were just merely having a conversation about the game. And uh, Mitchell had been receiving text messages and alerts from a Pokemon Go players group where people were bragging about their scores. LAPD fires both Lozano and Mitchell and fires them for a variety of different things, uh, including dishonesty and a dereliction of duty and other charges. Uh, they appeal, and the case ends up in the California Court of Appeals, which upholds the termination. Uh, and 
what's their basic argument? Uh, how do you challenge a termination? And their argument is that the in-car video should have been suppressed, that it was a violation of their right to privacy under the California Constitution uh, for anybody, whether it was Sergeant Gomez or Internal Affairs, to have reviewed that in-car video and that without the in-car video, there wasn't enough evidence to sustain their terminations. And the court rejects that argument. Now, here's what the court says, and I'm quoting. The in-car video was not deployed to monitor private conversations, but the city's policies recognize there may be instances when the system records personal conversations that evidence criminal or egregious misconduct by department personnel because the purpose of the system is to provide department employees with a tool for crime documentation and prosecution, it would be preposterous to require commanding officers and internal affairs investigators to ignore evidence of egregious misconduct simply because it was unintentionally captured on an in-car recording. Uh, so termination upheld. Uh, a warning to everybody, by the way, about any video systems that have audio capabilities, uh, there's probably not going to be a right to privacy. Uh, certainly, uh, if it's in a body cam situation or an in-car video like this, or uh, some places it's going to be a video that is installed in a fire station or a police station, it's very likely not going to be a right to privacy. Uh, what is said when you are being recorded by department equipment that you know about, what you've said is fair game in the disciplinary process. Next up is a case from Oregon, and this one does have a lot of significance and does not have that much in the way of unusual facts. I have to set the table a little bit on this one uh, before I get into the case. So uh, we've been over in the podcast many times uh, the notion that uh, the duty to bargain, collectively bargain in good faith, uh, is a continuing duty. And that unless a union waives the right in a collective bargaining agreement to negotiate over something, uh, that the employer has the obligation to negotiate before changes of past practice in that area, so long as that area is a negotiable topic. So let's say your contract, for example, says nothing about a residency requirement. Uh, and the employer decides we're going to make all the firefighters live within the city limits. We're going to have a residency requirement. Is that a mandatory subject of bargaining? Yeah, that's a working condition. It subjects an employee to potential discipline for noncompliance. That's mandatorily negotiable. That means that even though the contract may be completely silent on the issue of residency, because that's a mandatory subject of bargaining, if the union insists on bargaining on it, the employer must bargain over that change. Uh, and so the, uh, the general rule, the way you phrase the continuing to duty to bargain, is that if something is mandatorily negotiable, the employer may not make a change in past practice without first negotiating with the union unless the union has somehow waived the right to bargain over 
whatever that change might be. So that's the continuing duty to bargain. And notice that every time I described it, I was referring to a change that the employer was making, a change in past practices as triggering the duty to bargain. But what if there's no change? What if the union midterm simply wants to bargain over something that's not referenced in the contract, but would be a mandatory subject of bargaining? So, uh, for, for example, uh, and uh, that doesn't appear to be the facts in this case, although it might be because this case is so generally worded. But for example, uh, let's say that when COVID first hit, uh, the union decided that it wanted to bargain about safety protocols in the workplace with respect to COVID. Uh, and of course, there's not going to be anything in the contract when COVID first hit in 2020 about um, COVID protocols in the workplace, would the union have the right to bargain over that if the employer didn't change anything? If, if the employer wasn't imposing a masking requirement or a, a vaccination requirement, no change, but still a mandatory subject of bargaining. And that's what this case out of Oregon talks about. And it is, I think, kind of a bombshell decision. Uh, and so what's going on in the case? Uh, the union is the Multnomah County uh, Corrections Deputy Association. Uh, Multnomah County is Portland's county. Uh, and it demanded to bargain over, and I'm quoting here, this is all that's in the opinion, mandatory safety issues. There was nothing in the contract on safety. The county refuses to bargain and says, hey, we didn't change anything. We didn't trigger the continuing duty to bargain. We don't have any obligation to engage in midterm bargaining where we haven't proposed or made any sort of changes concerning a mandatory subject. Uh, but uh, the association uh, challenges that position through filing an unfair labor practice complaint alleging bad faith bargaining against the county. Uh, and the matter goes to Oregon's Employment Relations Board. That's the labor board in Oregon that decides these issues. Um, and uh, the labor board decides that, in fact, the county does have an obligation to bargain. The county, kind of disbelieving that, appeals to the Oregon Court of Appeals. And the Oregon Court of Appeals upholds the labor board's decision that the county did have an obligation to bargain. Why? What, what, what is the basis for this notion that a union can simply demand to bargain midterm in the contract over something that's not referenced in the contract? The court says there's, you know, there's a couple of things that come into play here in terms of the policies that uh, undergird Oregon's Collective Bargaining Act. One thing is, is that the legislature has declared in its policy statement uh, for the statutes, the collective bargaining statutes, it is declared that the purpose of the law was to obligate public employers and their union representatives to enter into collective negotiations 
with willingness to resolve grievances and disputes related to employee relations. Uh, in other words, uh, the Court of Appeal says, there is this bias towards bargaining as a way of solving problems. And secondly, uh, the court observes that the legislature intended to extend the public employees in Oregon, back when the collective bargaining law was passed in 1973, the same benefits and protections that had long been afforded in the private sector under the National Labor Relations Act. And therefore, says the Court of Appeals in this Multnomah County Corrections case, we're going to look at National Labor Relations Board precedent on the issue. And in fact, the issue has been litigated many times. Uh, first, most prominently, in a case called Jacobs Manufacturing back in 1952. And the court ended up deciding in that case that there's nothing in the National Labor Relations Act that, quote, relieves an employer of the duty to bargain as to subjects which were neither discussed nor embodied in the terms and conditions of the contract. So nothing in the NLRB that says, employer, uh, you're free. You don't have to bargain over anything until the contract uh, is next being renewed. And that allows a union to demand to negotiate midterm. So back to the Oregon Court of Appeals, away from the 1952 NLRB case, the Court of Appeals ends up concluding this. And it's one fairly long sentence. I'll read it to you. We hold that the Employment Relations Board conclusions under Oregon's collective bargaining laws, that the county has a duty to bargain when the association requests midterm bargaining over a mandatory subject not covered by the party's agreement, is consistent with the range of discretion allowed by the more general policy underlying the collective bargaining laws. In other words, decision of the labor board upheld as being within its discretion, there is an obligation on the part of employers to negotiate with unions over topics that are not mentioned in the contract that are mandatory for bargaining, even in the absence of a change in past practice. Wow. That is, first of all, uh, hats off to the lawyers who litigated this case. That is really creative. And secondly, that's not the law in most places in the country. And third, but it makes sense. If your collective bargaining statute in your state has the same roots in the National Labor Relations Act, I'm wondering whether or not this sort of argument would prevail in a New York or in Illinois, or Pennsylvania, or New Jersey, or California, or any state with statewide collective bargaining laws. Fascinating case. It'd be interesting to track this as it uh, gets some legs over the years. While I'm talking about bargaining, uh, let me talk about a Massachusetts case. Uh, so uh, Sometimes when you see courts and labor boards talk about the obligation to bargain, they'll distinguish between bargaining about a decision 
and bargaining about the effects of a decision. And it could well be that a decision is not negotiable. It's a management right. But there could be effects from the decision that are negotiable. A classic case, uh, just because it's with us 24-7 right now, are mandatory vaccination requirements. Uh, that is a decision that labor boards are finding is not negotiable, whether or not to have a mandatory vaccination uh, policy. But those same labor boards are finding that all sorts of effects that stem from that decision are negotiable. And those effects include things like, should people who are vaccinated get premium pay? Or what does the progressive discipline process look like for people who are not complying? Or what is the scope of the religious exemption going to be? Or do you get time off for vaccination? You can imagine there's a long list of mandatorily negotiable effects. Um, so uh, I just want everybody to keep in the back of their minds that even though a decision could be an employer's to make, there still could be negotiable effects. And in every state that I know of, in the absence of an emergency that requires that the decision be implemented right now, the effects have to be bargained before the decision can be implemented. So you have to go through the entire process of bargaining effects, even though the employer has the obligate or the right to make the decision and implement the decision, but it can't implement until after the conclusion of effects bargaining. And if you're in a state with binding arbitration as the last step in the bargaining process, effects bargaining can take a while, right? You sit down at the table, then you probably have a process of mediation that is then followed by a process of arbitration. You might not be able to finish bargaining effects within a year. Now, there is an emergency exception to that, and we're seeing that applied in some of these COVID cases, uh, but that's not the general rule. That's the exception. Uh, the general rule is you got to finish effects bargaining before you can implement all right, so what's this Massachusetts case about? It is, of course, an effects bargaining case, and it's something that's more prosaic than a, you know, a vaccine mandate, but it's something that comes up a lot of times in a lot of different agencies. And it is the question of, is there something negotiable about a change in practices dealing with fitness for duty evaluations? So this is a police key case. It involves um, uh, a decision by the police chief of Newton, uh, Massachusetts. And the chief noted that a captain, a uh, captain is unnamed in the court's opinion in this case, had taken an unusually high number of personal days uh, following deaths in his family and following a personal injury that he suffered that was unrelated to his work. The chief thought that the captain was a different person than he had been. That's a quote from the chief. And so the chief orders the captain to undergo uh, physical and psychological fitness for duty examinations and puts the captain on paid administrative leave pending the results of those examinations. 
Well, in Massachusetts, it's very common for uh, command officers to be in their own separate union. Uh, this captain is represented by the Newton Police uh, Superior Officers Association, uh, and the association requests bargaining over certain aspects of the examinations. Uh, and the city rejects the request, saying, look, whether or not we're going to have a fitness for duty evaluation, uh, that's a, a management right. The captain ends up getting cleared of, uh, in both evaluations. He, of course, complies with the order to go through the evaluations. Remember, uh, work now, grieve later, the basic rule, you comply with orders like that rather than risk an insubordination charge. Uh, but the association isn't done. It files what's called in Massachusetts a prohibited practice charge. Everywhere else it's called an unfair labor practice charge. Uh, with the Massachusetts Labor Board, it's called the Department of Labor Relations there, or DLR. And the association is saying, hey, you had to bargain over the effects of this change in past practice with respect to fitness for duty evaluations. Um, and uh, the Department of Labor Relations finds in favor of the association, and then the city takes the matter to a, a court of appeals in Massachusetts. And uh, the court ends up upholding the decision that the city committed an unfair labor practice. The court says, look, short of uh, impasse, a public employer can't unilaterally implement changes in a mandatory subject of bargaining without negotiations. It's certainly true, says the court, that certain types of managerial decisions are reserved to the public employer's discretion, their management rights. They're exempt from the duty to bargain. Um, but it is also true that those sorts of decisions may I'm quoting, touch on the terms and conditions of employment, end quote. And, says the court, that is certainly the case with a fitness for duty evaluation. You can see it from what happened to this captain. He was suspended from work, albeit with pay, uh, and, uh, and that meant that he missed out, not just on his normal job duties, but it impacted him in overtime and and the suspension itself uh, concerned his working conditions. And the mere fact that the examinations didn't uh, result in the uh, immediate uh, revocation of the suspension, that he was kept on suspension until the city finally made the decision to put him back to work, that doesn't mean that this case goes away. We find that the there are all sorts of negotiable effects related to the change in past practice concerning this non-negotiable decision to have a fitness for duty evaluation. And we find that it is perfectly appropriate to require the employer to finish bargaining those effects before changing the past practice. Uh, and the court ends up uh, talking about one of the city's argument that I, I, arguments that I think is pretty interesting. Uh, the, here's what the court says. The city argues that by requiring it to bargain over the method, means, and impact of fitness for duty examinations, 
the Labor Board opened the floodgates to protect protracted negotiations with every union on every case. We think the city overstates the practical difficulties of the duty to bargain over the impact of its decision-making. How many times have you heard me say on this podcast something to the effect that a court or a labor board in a bargaining environment is going to look at both sides and say, why are you here? You should be bargaining this stuff. Just go bargaining. When in doubt, bargain. Because bargaining can solve the problem. There is this bias towards pushing things into the bargaining environment in the hope that a mutually beneficial result can result from the bargaining process. One more case I want to talk about just simply uh, because I have not addressed this issue in the podcast for several years, and that is something that's called the firefighter's rule and how it applies. Uh, The firefighter's rule has been adopted by courts in many states, not all. Uh, Some states have rejected it. It's a judge-made rule uh, that generally prohibits firefighters and police officers who are injured in the course of their duties from suing those whose negligence caused their presence at the location where the injury occurred. What these courts find is that the very nature of a police officer's or a firefighter's occupation limits their ability to bring civil lawsuits for people who negligently injure them on the job. Uh, This is a long-standing rule. It came to us from a decision of the Illinois Supreme Court back in the, boy, I think it was 1910s or 1920s. Uh, It has spread out to the rest of the country. It is all over the place. Uh, As I've said, some courts have uh, rejected it. I had the, uh, I call it, think of it as a privilege of uh, handling a case before the Oregon Supreme Court in the 1980s where the court uh, overturned the firefighters rule. In some other states, Colorado, for example, it has been overturned by a legislature. But in the majority of the states, This firefighter's rule uh, exists. And what it does is it says that if you are a police officer or a firefighter, you have less rights than any other type of employee to sue someone whose negligence injures you while you're on the job. And uh, this case that comes out of Maryland that I want to talk about is just an example that the firefighter's rule is alive and well in this country. This case involves uh, a deputy sheriff with the Frederick County Sheriff's Office uh, by the name of Cassandra Topper. She's responding to a minor motor vehicle accident in a small town called Emmitsburg, uh, Maryland. When she gets at the scene, she learns that there's a vehicle that's been operated by a guy named Linwood Stride, that it had struck another car in the rear. Stride accepts responsibility for the accident, explains to uh, Deputy Topper that he'd been in a hurry, but Stride's vehicle is blocking another motorist from exiting a parking lot. So Topper tells Stride, move your vehicle forward. Uh, Stride gets into his vehicle, starts it, and begins revving the engine, 
and drives right into Topper and injures her. Uh, and it, it, she ends up with some pretty severe injuries to her neck and her left hand and arm and shoulder. Uh, she undergoes shoulder surgery, and she's unable to return to work for several months. A topper sues, uh, not Stride, because Stride since passed away, uh, unrelated to the accident. Uh, so she sues his estate, and she's alleging a single count of negligence, saying, you drove into me, man. Uh, you, you were negligent. Uh, and the uh, Court of Appeals in Maryland, uh, which has long ago adopted the firefighter's rule, uh, finds that the firefighter's rule bars Topper from bringing a lawsuit. So uh, how does the court get at this issue? The court says, well, look, in Maryland, our version of the firefighter's rule, and there are different versions in different states that more or less block lawsuits, uh, our version of the firefighter's rule doesn't apply when law enforcement officers sustain injuries after the initial period of anticipated occupational risk. So the question is whether the occupational risk here, responding to this uh, minor vehicle accident, this rear-ender collision, whether or not that anticipated risk associated with uh, Topper responding to that call, whether or not it extended so far as to Topper getting in the car and driving into, uh, excuse me, Stride getting into the car and driving into Topper. And the court says, well, you know what? Uh, we think that the rule bars Topper's lawsuit. Why? I'm quoting. Sustaining injury after directing the driver of a car damaged during a motor vehicle collision which was blocking other vehicles from accessing the public road, directing that driver to move his vehicle falls squarely within the range of hazards that police officers are expected to confront in the course of their duties on behalf of the public. The possibility of injury from the movement of the vehicle involved in the initial accident away from the lanes of travel was reasonably foreseeable as part of Topper's occupational risk in investigating a motor vehicle collision. The firefighter rule bars Topper's negligence claim. Now, you may think of that case and your response may be, that's unfair. Uh, I mean, if you are a line police officer, firefighter, even this could even apply potentially to some corrections officers, you may think, why should I have less rights to sue someone who negligently injures me? If you're an employer, you may think, what? that's wrong. I mean, we have to end up bearing all of the responsibility through workers' compensation and disability pensions uh, for injuries that were caused negligently by a third party. Why shouldn't we have the right to get what the law calls contribution from that third party? You may think this, the firefighter's rule is unfair, but until more folks challenge the firefighter's rule and say this is, this is a, a law that had its theoretical roots in events 
and a society that existed a hundred years ago, and it makes no sense today, until more folks challenge this rule, we're going to see results like we just saw in Maryland. You can challenge it through the legislative process. It's very easy to eliminate the firefighters rule. You just need to convince the legislature that people who are negligent need to bear the responsibility for their own negligence. You can challenge it there. You can challenge it in court, less likely to get judges on the side of changing precedent that has existed for dozens, if not scores of years. But unless those challenges come, we'll be talking about this 10 years from now, and there'll be another case exactly like this. And these cases happen all the time. Okay, rant over on the firefighter's rule. Thank you for joining me for this second podcast of 2021. Look forward to seeing you at uh, an LRIS seminar. We're having one that is coming up uh, in a couple of weeks, or actually less than a couple of weeks in Las Vegas on union leadership. And then in March, we'll be holding our collective bargaining seminar, uh, taking apart the obligation to collectively bargain from A to Z. Uh, and until then, uh, be safe out there. This is Will Aitchison signing off.